You know, it used to be that the poor was the problem for the rich, but now I'm afraid the rich has become the problem for the poor. Thank you, Catherine and Alonzo and Vicki for caring for those who aren't poor but are full of your grace and God's love because of the work you and many of you at Riverside and other churches have done. It brings us exactly to this morning's passage, in fact. It comes from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 4, verses 21 through 30. Bill provided a feast with half of this passage. Actually, I'm supposed to preach the second half, but I'm using the whole passage because I think it's important to see it in context. Bill provided a feast for us last week on this text, and I hope to bring uh, at least some dessert to it, although I suspect it may not be as sweet as you would like. The text comes to us, as I said, from Luke, and may we hear this passage with ears that help our understanding. Jesus had been baptized by John and then gone into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days, and after that immediately, Luke says... Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread throughout the surrounding county. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim the release to captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant, and sat down, which was the posture of a rabbi as the congregation stood up to listen. And all of their eyes were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in all your hearing. All of them spoke well of Jesus, amazed at the gracious words that came out of his mouth. They said, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, Do here also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And then he said, Truly I tell you, No prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and when there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet, Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. And there were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed 
except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of town, led him to the brow of a hill on which their town was built so that they may hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through their midst and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. They say that young people especially, uh, maybe all of us now because of technology, learn best by experiential uh, moments, by experiencing something, and out of that experience then we ask deeper questions of meaning and purpose, hopefully deeper questions of theology. We have the experience, we come back and reflect. When I was growing up, it was the opposite. We reflect, we think, we inform, we learn, and from that learning, we then go out to the experience. I think Jesus understood that the best way of learning was to set the table for experience and sometimes even to pull the, to pull the table out from under them as an experience that you know what? Something completely brand new and provocative is about to happen. Especially to those he knew best. He was from Nazareth, the the story says. It was not much of a town, what we would call a podunk town, really. Not the kind of place you would pull off the road to see unless you had to. Nothing happened there except, really, Ten years ago, when the Abrahams built a well, it was Mayberry-like, small-town stuff where everybody knew everybody's business. Did you hear about Mark and, and Mary's daughter, Edith? Bless their hearts. Seems like Edith is, is not doing what they want. She's, she's refusing to marry John even though both sets of parents had already agreed to this even before she was born. Can you believe such a thing? It was small town stuff. In fact, Nazareth had such a bad reputation that when Jesus was calling the disciples in the Gospel of John, he called Philip first, who then went to his brother Nathanael and said to him, Nathanael, we have found the one whom Moses and the prophets proclaimed was coming, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. And Nathanael said, Nazareth? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Apparently everyone knew what kind of town Nazareth was. Some of us know what it feels like to be from Nazareth more than others. There's no worse feeling in the world because of the color of your skin or because of your athletic ability or because of your intellect or because of whatever reason that you were made to feel less than. Sometimes you're never picked. You're passed over. You get no recognition. You go about your life feeling absolutely worthless. It puts a chip on your shoulder. It's not good for your self-esteem. 
I was eating lunch a while back, and a young couple sat down in the pew beside me and began a conversation with their elder daughter, who was probably eight or nine. She was apparently uh, being rewarded uh, for making straight A's on her report card, and her parents were going on and on about how smart she was and how hard she worked, while at that same time, their younger son, who was probably six or seven, was interrupting by saying, Dad, Dad, did you see I scored two goals in the basketball game uh, last week? John, that was great, wonderful. And then they would turn back to their daughter, who was the focus at that point, and he'd interrupt, Mom, did you see how well I made up my bed? And yes, wonderful, uh, but right now we just want to tell your older sister how proud we are of her. It was a painful thing to watch that young son play second fiddle to his perfect elder sister. Nazareth never even made the orchestra. Maybe that's why Jesus left home to begin with. Yes, he'd grown up as a carpenter, taught by his earthly father, but he heard a call from his heavenly father to become a priest, a rabbi, a prophet. And so he left, and in the leaving, he began to preach and teach and heal those with illnesses, and he made a name for himself. He even went to Capernaum, of all places. Capernaum was sketchy at best. It was full of Jews, yes, but also Gentiles, immigrants, refugees, half-breeds, all the kind of people you don't really want your son or daughter to mess with. Jesus had been there and preached in their synagogues and churches. Jesus had healed them. He'd been there, but now he was coming home to us at Nazareth. They were proud, as proud as they should be for the homeboy who's coming back to us. They wanted everybody to know. They went to the rabbi at the synagogue and said, look, we need to let him preach. He's coming back. It's his job to preach. And then we'll throw a big feast for him on the, on the town square. The rabbi consented. And when it was time, Jesus stood up and they gave him the text to preach. His parents and family and brothers and sisters reserved the first three pews on the front of the church. They paid for the flowers. Uh, they made sure all their friends were there from out of town. It was, it was Katie bar the door. Everybody was so full of excitement, they couldn't stand it. Why not? Roy Williams, the basketball coach at North Carolina, continues a tradition that Dean Smith started where every single player on the team, if they live far away, will get to play in a game with a team close to their hometown. So they'll go to Idaho or Iowa or California and play a game. And even if you're on the third string, you will start that day because they knew how important it is for the members of the family and the hometown to be able to see their homegrown boy play basketball and important for the player. Jesus is coming, they said, and he's one of us. Now, it's a huge pressure to preach before your home church, your first sermon in your home church, and I'm sure that Jesus felt that pressure like the rest of us. First time I did it, 
I didn't sleep the night before. I tend by default when I get anxious to work and rework and work and rework the sermon, just pick it to death, uh, to write it several times and start over, hoping to get just the right nuance, a little humor, something provocative, maybe leave, uh, leave the people hanging a little bit. I worked to death on it for days and days. And after I preached it, I thought I had nailed it. We don't really know how we affect people. Uh, I tell you, uh, especially preachers. Uh, but two weeks later, when they sent the tape to me and I listened to it, even I went to sleep. <laughs> Jesus had to feel that same pressure. He had them in the palm of his hand. All he needed to say, coming back to his home church, was how special you are, how wonderful you are, what a great job you did in helping to raise me, what a a wonderful mission you have. He just needed to tell them they should just keep doing what they have been doing all along, to give them a sense of worth and well-being. It's what every returning preacher should say. And all of that was true, and it would have been true. As he said it, God loved them. They were certainly God's people. God loved them, especially as Jews. They were persecuted by the hands of the Roman Empire. They were under their thumb. If ever they needed to hear Jesus give them an encouraging word about how much God loves you and how much God has chosen you, it was the synagogue in Nazareth. But that's not what he said. He stood up, took the scroll, and began to read. He picked the place. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he rolled up the scroll, handed it off, and began to preach. Every eye was focused on him, every ear attending to what he said. And he opened with words of assurance. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Fulfilled? Did he say now, today, fulfilled? Here? The year of the Lord's favor? To us? They knew Isaiah's text like the back of their hand. They knew it was about liberation of those who were oppressed. They understood themselves as being oppressed and poor and held captive. Today, we are being liberated. And they were all full of incredible joy and excitement. Smiles came across their mouths. Their eyes lit up. They all began to nod their heads and to look at each other, saying, Yes, our boy Jesus, he's here to fulfill the blessing of God's promise. Someone in the back even whispered, how can that be? Isn't that just Joseph's son? If he'd only stopped there, if he'd only stopped there, they would have hoisted him up on their shoulders and carried him to the town hall for lunch, not hoisting him up to carry him to the cliff to throw him off. 
Turns out the most frequent complaint of preachers, uh, me especially, by the way, is that we tend uh, to go on too long, that we should have quit the sermon earlier, that we have passed by plenty of exits that we should have pulled off on and taken before we finally just ran out of gas and pulled over to the side of the road. Plus, the preacher says many things that the congregation hears in your own way. Depending on where you are in context, maybe you're dealing with a job issue or you're dealing with family squabbles, you're dealing with health issues, wherever your context, how the preacher communicates to that, that to you goes through your own perceptive hearing dealing with where you are at that time, which in many cases means that you're hearing something that may not be what I meant to say or that may, in fact, be better than how I said it. And it is also true that preachers sometimes muddle it up to such an extent that nobody can understand what we're talking about. A while back, I was having lunch at Richard's. There's a round table in the back on the left as you go in uh, where pretty much the same group of uh, men gather on most days, many of whom are Riverside members. They didn't know I was there a couple of tables over. As I sat down, I heard one of them say, boy, that was a humdinger of a sermon the preacher preached yesterday, wasn't it? And everybody kind of went, uh. And then he said, I wish I knew what in the H-E-L-L he was talking about. He had a point. In Jesus' case, he didn't preach too long. And his sermon was not muddled. It was about a minute long and absolutely right to the point. Everyone got it, which is why they turned into a lynch mob. He opened after the assurance with a challenge. Doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Do for us here in your hometown, Jesus. It's your hometown. Do for us here in your hometown the same things you did in Capernaum. You know, Capernaum. Do for us at least what you did for them. And then he laid this big old ugly egg. Truly I tell you, he said, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. In other words, you don't really want to hear what I'm about to say. The truth is, he said, which is Jesus' code word for hold on to your seats. The truth is that there were many widows in Israel during the time of the famine And Elijah went instead of them to the widow in Sidon. Sidon? Did he say Sidon? The Gentile Sidon? The enemy Sidon? And in case they didn't hear it, he said, and there were many lepers in the time of Elisha, and he didn't go to any of the lepers in Israel, but instead to Naaman in Syria would be like saying Iran. Their mouths dropped open, their bodies grew rigid, 
Maybe he had more to say. Maybe he was just opening up with a provocative uh, challenge to get their attention, which he did. Uh, Maybe he was going to smooth it out later in his sermon. It didn't matter. By that time, the whole congregation was enraged, it said. Completely enraged, they rose up. Apparently, as Luke says, the whole congregation now, so that must include the three pews of family members, they rose up and began to try to grab him, pushing him to the edge of the cliff in hopes of, of, of throwing him off and stoning him. Sounds a little overreactive. All Jesus needed to say, I mean, he could have spun it differently. He he just simply needed to say to his friends and neighbors uh, the truth about any prophet. uh, But he, he, he said it in a way that caused them to turn into a lynch mob. What he said, of course, was the truth that revealed their pride and their pettiness and their jealousy and their small-minded, self-righteous illusions that because he was from there and because they were Jewish that they were in some way better than others, especially those in Capernaum. He burst their bubble. God, he said, loves them just as much as God loves you. And what he was saying is that God is a lot bigger than your own provincial, local understanding of who God is. Even big enough to love your enemies in Syria and Sidon. Look, I didn't say this. It's in the Bible. I'm not making this up. I read it to you. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. And it's hard to hear. I can't help but feel bad for the Nazarenes. I mean, he couldn't have, couldn't he just been a little more gentle? Yes, you're special. God loves you more than you can know, but God also loves everyone else too. Uh, Yes, you're unique, you're unique, but everybody is unique too. Why did he do this? The story ends by saying that as they tried to throw him off the cliff, he passed through their midst and went on his way. And on his way, we know, is the way to Jerusalem and the cross, where a much larger lynch mob gathered that time, which he could not escape from, and ended up crucifying him for telling the truth that none of us want to hear. And on that cross, ironically, he ended up practicing exactly what he preached. That by that cross, we, all of us, are being shown the unconditional love of God. Not some of us, all of us. On the cross, all of us are God's children. And that we, in our own oppression and slavery and blindness, are set free All of us, Jew and Gentile, male and female, black and white, Christian, and even Muslim and Jew and atheist and agnostic and Buddhist, all of us are set free in that act on the cross 
from the blindness and captivity of our own small, selfish, ego needs. Not all of us know it, but isn't that the point of us as a church to go out and to proclaim it in all that we do and even use words if necessary? Jesus was the prophet for sure. He was the sword of truth. And in that prophet place, Jesus, this sword, was the only sword that heals the very wound that it inflicts. Maybe I should have stopped earlier. <laughs>